0: Hey friends, there's a really famous quote that says you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. So what happens when one of the things you spend the most time with is your phone? You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 309, Jay Kim and the Spiritual Formation of Technology. Welcome back to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. I almost forgot the last part there. I've only said it 300 times or so, but that's still that's what can happen. Getting old. I guess, Guys, welcome to Halfway There. I'm glad that you are here. We're going to have a great conversation today. Before we get into that, I just want to encourage you, uh, if you want, if you, if you enjoy this conversation, I know it's going to challenge you. Go ahead and just share it with a friend. Text it to a friend or share it on Facebook or where where are kids hanging out today, TikTok or something. Put on, I don't know. I don't know how you would do that, but go ahead and do it. Share it with somebody and let them know uh, that they should listen. And that would mean an awful lot to me and uh, to our guests, I'm sure. Uh, Okay. So today I'm excited about this because um, I don't do a ton of repeat guests. And there's a reason for that. But sometimes there are conversations I like to have, in fact, over the next rest of the year. You're gonna hear a few, a few, uh, a few guests we brought back because there's conversations that I like to have. One of them today uh is pastor and author Jay Kim. He was our guest back on episode 206. Welcome back, Jay.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be a repeat guest. Incredible.
0: You are. It's an incredible <laughs> honor. You you know no idea, but it's uh I don't do a ton of those like I was saying. Yeah. But uh I love what you're writing. And so I wanted to just uh sometimes it gives me a chance to branch out from the normal format, do something a little bit different. And I like, I like doing that. But I also love your your work and the way that you framed um it in this book. And so we'll talk about some of that as well. Um, pastor and author, that's really broad. Big so give us a little, give us a little update about to where you've been the last uh, couple of years and kind of you know where God has. Jake Kim right now.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, first, Eric, it's great to be back on with you and love your work and um yeah, honored honored to to chat again. I I think uh our first conversation uh when we first chatted, I was on staff at a church called Vintage Faith in Santa Cruz, California, which is yeah. a wonderful beach town, very eclectic and strange and weird uh, in beautiful ways. Since then, I have um, moved on to a new role at a different church, a church where I was on staff previously called Westgate Church, uh, right in the heart of Silicon Valley. So I've been back here uh, since August of 2020 and uh, recently uh, transitioned into you know the lead role here, which has been all sorts of... Uh, craziness and and beautiful okay. goodness and challenges, uh, but an absolute joy. So, uh, yeah, there you go. I'm I'm serving right here in the heart of Silicon Valley, which is where I've spent basically my entire life. So, uh, it's nice to be yeah. home.
0: So that was one of the interesting things, right, about what you're writing because the book, which I haven't mentioned yet. Your new book, your last book was called Analog Church. This one's called Analog Christian, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, cultivating contentment, resilience, and wisdom in the digital age, which is an interesting thing to be writing just right in the heart of Silicon <laughs> Valley, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, the digital age, it's everywhere. It's pervasive. Everyone's thinking about it in some form or fashion, but I think For me and for many of us living here in the sort of tech epicenter of the world, we are thinking about it in unique ways and sometimes maybe dangerously not thinking about it at all because it is so much a part of our culture and ethos here. And and literally, like at our church, uh, the majority, I think it's safe to say the majority of the people who call our church home uh, either work in or are one or two degrees of separation removed from someone close who works in tech, you know, at Apple or Google or any number of startups in the area. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it's right here. And uh, so I, I think in some ways it's kind of natural that I would find myself writing about this stuff just because it's been the air I've breathed basically my whole yeah. whole life. How do you think that shapes you?
0: What, is that, what does that give you that's unique?
1: Well, there's fascinating conversations that happen here. Uh, for one, you know, it's yeah. interesting when you're surrounded by the men and women who on a daily basis are sort of on the front lines of dreaming up, engineering, creating, crafting, uh, you know, the stuff, you know, these little black boxes that sit in our back pockets and these search engines that give us access to whatever information we want or need. You know, I'm surrounded by people who don't just use that stuff, but make that stuff. So- Uh, One, just on a very basic level, I've always been fascinated by those conversations, both the technicality of it, but also like the philosophy behind it, the approach. Um, I have a deep fascination with, you know, sort of design philosophies and such. So Mm -hmm. I just naturally like having those conversations. I'm very curious about those things. Um, But I think, too, what it's done is it's, uh, you know, it's almost... By by default, it's made us, and it's gonna sound really pretentious, and I don't mean it to be, but by default, <laughs> you can be pretentious. It's all right. By default, it's made us more thoughtful about the stuff. And by more thoughtful, mm. I don't mean we're more thoughtful people, we're not, I just mean we think about it more <laughs> because literally people's nine to five, it's more like nine to nine, you know, is uh it's wow. literally they're paid to think about this stuff, and then for me as a pastor trying to serve uh and and lead people who are living oh, yeah. in those spaces and then asking the question well how is Christ forming them um it just leads to very natural it, it very naturally leads to interesting intersections between Uh, the digital age and, and formation into Christ likeness. So I think that's where much of, you know, my written work has sort of come from just being here, having those conversations, naturally being curious and about and fascinated by some of this stuff.
0: Yeah. And reflection on it, I assume through as, as through those conversations. Well, so that's one of the reasons I asked the question because I think a lot of, a lot of people are considering these things and, you know, we, we talk about it maybe all the time especially as parents, right. We're always considering like, what do I do? How much screen time should my kid have? Yeah. (laughs) Because the answer is no longer it can be zero. (laughs) There's, there's all kinds. So we're have we're having those things. People are thinking about it, but being in the soup as it were, I think is a really interesting place to kind of also be thinking about it. And that's where it's coming, coming, where you're coming from. So very interesting. Well, so I'm curious uh, again, we mentioned your, your book that came out. So you, I think I may made the joke cause I thought you meant you timed it perfectly, but I think maybe you thought a book saying we need real people in the middle of a pandemic was not a good idea <laughs> yeah, or was kind of like, that wasn't well timed. Uh, maybe I'm not, tell me if I'm not true, right on that, but it seemed like um, it was the conversation people were having yeah. right already. And so it seemed like a great time to, for that book to exist. What was the response? Would you, would you find you know, people thought about that.
1: Yeah. No, you're spot on. I, 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 we may have talked about it the last time we chatted. Yeah. I had, I had real tension about releasing that book when we did, uh, but in hindsight, I'm so grateful that we did. Um, you know, if, if there was anything I would have wanted to say as we entered the sort of COVID pandemic digital reality that we've lived for, you know, two years now in some ways, Um, that book is probably what I would have wanted to say, you know, to, to pastors and church leaders. So, uh, yeah, I'm grateful that maybe God's divine providence, I don't know, you know, but the book was scheduled to release when it, when it did. Um, yeah, you know, the response has been, uh, really humbling and I'm grateful for it. Uh, obviously, anytime you release work publicly, you know, not everyone's going to love it. So yeah, I've for sure had my fair share of critique. And that's fine. And I I receive it. And some of that critique was quite valid. You know, I received it and helped me get better. Um, but I've been really surprised the overwhelming response, the overwhelming majority of the response has been, man, thanks for writing what you did, this sort of Gives language to some of the angst I've felt even long before COVID that's been accelerated and accentuated by um the pandemic. So uh yeah, it's been really positive. Um, and and I also I, I'm very hopeful that uh, you know, the first book, Analog Church, I'm really hopeful that it was just a first word in an ongoing conversation. Mm. And it certainly in some ways feels that way. I think the conversation is still. Ongoing, and there there are some brilliant people who are uh, adding um, and and improving and bettering that conversation. So I'm I'm just really humbled and grateful to have been, you know, a very small part of what I believe is is a critically important conversation, both uh, ecclesiologically and formationally for followers of Jesus uh, in the digital age.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think you were. Basically saying we need real people, right? At, and at a time when I think a lot of us were really keenly aware of that, right? As as the pandemic, we we're like, whoa, we can't even like even just some things like standing in line, you know. And I've noticed this even today. Uh, I forget where I was recently. I was in line, and I stood, you know, my six feet back, right yeah. or whatever it is, uh, way further back than I normally would have. And I thought, oh, okay, that's a, that's probably going to be with us for a while, but I'm okay with it because even before COVID there were other things that you could catch and I don't want any of those either. So it's good to give, give me six feet. But uh, anyway, all of that I'm interested in, can you start that? I love that calling it a first word. Uh, I was curious. And one thing I wanted to ask you about was I did read in analog Christian that you had um, that you had like a review where somebody was like, Hey, this is not, you know, this is kind of a negative review that you talk about. Yeah, you, You had to, you had to kind of wrestle through that and go and realize, oh, there is actually maybe a place for like a, a digital church, even though that can't replace it.
1: Yeah. 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 I mean, again, like I said earlier, you know, you release something like a book very publicly and, you know, you should expect critique. Um, but there was one review. Yeah. I tell this story in, in the new book. There was one review that was especially, harsh and vitriolic and it felt really personal there was clearly anger you know some form of anger uh, and it felt like it was toward me so uh, i talk about how my instinctive initial reaction was one of you know anger and vitriol right back but long story short uh, i got into a dialogue with this person and come to find out you know this person was upset because i didn't address a particular uh, part of the population for whom digital churches is, is all they have, you know, shut-ins in particular, those for whom, um, physical limitations actually literally, you know, prevent them from being able to the darken the, the physical doors of a church. And, uh, and so for them, digital connection and digital church, as you, as you, um, will, uh, it sort of extends, you know, um, community to them in a way that's meaningful, meaningful, uh, in, in ways that I can't even quite understand. And so, Mm -hmm. um, long story short, I realized that that anger, uh, wasn't necessarily truly toward me. It was, um, anger that was bubbling up because this person felt really unheard and unseen. And, uh, felt like everyone was piling on the digital thing when really in their church context, it had become a lifeline to those who were really marginalized and ostracized by the rest of society and culture. So that was a learning experience for me, but also it was really beautiful because it, you know, it taught me that there's always stuff beneath the stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, especially in online interactions, you know, all the outrage and all the hostility. There's, there's a lot of hurt, you know, and pain, and maybe the yeah. most Christ-like thing we can do is to, um, you know, sit in the outrage and the anger from the other long enough to humanize them and the situation, and and really lean into their pain and their hurt and help them feel heard and seen, and um, so yeah, it was a it was a beautiful sort of lesson learned for for me, yeah, and it and it did, um, I will say not just that, but all of COVID, you know, one of the things that it did was one, it it accentuated my beliefs. You know, what I shared in analog church, I believe them even more so now, but also, Mm -hmm. you know, my appreciation for digital technology has increased. I just imagine where we would have been, where my family or our church would have been these last couple of years. Had we not had digital, it would have been like, Oh man, that would have been a whole other level of isolation. So yeah, lots of, lots of gratitude for the, for the tech that we have.
0: Right. So that's my, my way of saying, okay, there's a lot here, uh, that is really, really good. Right. That, that, uh, helps create a connection that we otherwise wouldn't have. And I this is one reason I love podcasting. I talk about this all the time. This show can reach literally around the world, right? Yeah. People can listen to halfway there. I've talked to people, Not too long ago, I interviewed a woman in Great Britain, just like you, right? It's pretty amazing, right? Yeah. And I've talked to people around the world in different places, and I love that. Um, But that doesn't mean that there aren't some challenges, right? That doesn't mean that there aren't some things that we need to look at. And so, um, you know, so we're we're all kind of in this, uh, I guess I'm obsessed with soup today. I just had a frosty. I don't know what that has to do with it, but (laughs) the, uh, the, 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 sort of, we're all in this digital soup, right? So we have to, we have to figure out how to handle it. Um, and you kind of, this book you talk about at the beginning rose from something you were sensing in yourself, right? As you were interacting digitally. So describe that for us and tell us what that feeling was like.
1: Yeah. I mean, this goes years back. I, uh, and I think many people can relate to this sense. I just, as I found myself more and more tethered to my digital devices, my smartphone. Uh, needing to sort of incessantly, constantly check my email for no good reason, Uh, you know, opening up Instagram at any hint of boredom or downtime. I just, I found Mm -hmm. my physical body um, taking action in those ways, almost like as if I was having like an out of body experience, like without even knowing. I think most people can relate like, we've all had those moments where we opened our phones and then we, we forgot why we opened our phones, you know, and then there we are just staring into the uh, deep, dark digital abyss. And so, yeah, I mean, years ago, I I really started finding myself just in unhealthy ways, really tethered, you know, addicted, I would say to my device. And it's fascinating that word addict comes from a Latin word uh, that is, you know, its root is found, um, Used in uh, um, in Greek at the time of Jesus in the first century, and that word was a legal term used to describe slaves. So addiction is enslavement essentially. To be addicted to something yeah. is to be enslaved to it. I, you know, and anybody who's who's wrestled with addiction would say wholeheartedly, "Yes, it's enslavement." You know, I'm I'm not yeah. free when I'm addicted. Um, so I found myself there. I found myself enslaved to the digital world for one reason or another and that got me asking the question well if i'm enslaved if i'm the slave that means i'm not using the technology so much as it as the technology is using me and if that's true then then it's safe to say that technology is is shaping me And that's really problematic because I believe the life of Jesus is essentially the life of formation. Discipleship is the biblical Mm -hmm. word, right? To be a disciple, to be an apprentice, you know, somebody who learns the way of Jesus, lives the way of Jesus, is formed into the image of the risen Christ. And so I just, I came to realize, well, if, if my addictions, if my enslavement is forming me, my guess is that That the way in which it's forming me is very different than the way in which Jesus wants to form me. So I started going down that path, down that journey, and really searching for answers. Not like, I mean, I was also looking for practical answers to detach myself, to untether myself from these sort of digital masters in my life. But I was also looking biblically for, you know, what are the antidotes to um, the symptoms of my enslavement? And so that's where the genesis of the of the book mm-hmm. sort of came from. So it's yeah. actually a way more personal book than the first book. It's, it's a book that, you know, the first book was pr- written primarily with church leaders in mind, but the second book is really written for everybody. You know, anybody just navigating the terrain, the rough terrain of uh, our digital addictions. And yeah.
0: Yeah. I think you described it really well. I think anybody's watched the social dilemma. I'm sure you've watched yes. that. Uh, yeah. the, the you get this you get this picture of the you know the ways that picking up your phone and like is which is really interesting, right? It's not just like the app. It's not like Facebook is the is the evil. It's the whole e- ecosystem, right? It's the phone. It's yes. the thing that is designed to be a little bit addictive, and so you or maybe a lot, so that you're you're on it and it's valuable um and it does lots of good things. I can look at my calendar. I like that. That's really bad. <laughs> good yeah. for me cuz I need reminders. But the but then there's those other things that we, you know, can use it to numb and give you that dopamine and all that stuff. And they go over that in the movie which is both a little bit horrifying, right? And yeah. just, just kind of like wow. And they talk about how you become the product, right? Yes. I think it's I don't know if it's Seth Godin or if he was quoting somebody else who said if it's free you're the product. Yeah, right.
1: it's That's Tristan fun. Tristan Harris who okay. is one of the producers of the film and, you know, is one of the brightest minds along these lines. You know, he, he used to be a a design ethicist at Google. And then he very publicly mm-hmm. resigned his position because he realized it was just for show. <laughs> they didn't really want design ethics. And I'm not bashing Google here. He's just, it's his story, you know? And um, yeah, he's the one he, he's, been saying that for a long time. I've found it really helpful. If a, you know, if you think a product is free, it's not free. It's because you are the product, you know, and yeah. That's exactly right. That's what I mean. I mean, these technologies are not just being used by us, they are using us. And we have to be mindful of that and uh the only way to free ourselves or the first step to freeing ourselves is to acknowledge that truth that we are the product in many ways.
0: Yes. Okay. So what what do you think is at stake if we don't look at this properly?
1: Yeah, I think what's at stake is, you know, I think every human being is being formed at all times. We don't have a choice in the matter. Um, James K. Smith, I think in his book, You Are What You Love, he's got this great line. He says, all humans live leaning forward. And what he's talking about, you know, he's doing this whole thing about you know telos sort of the end you know the end toward which we are headed but i love that line all humans live leaning forward cuz what that means is none of us are neutral we are all headed in a direction life is almost like a, like an escalator you know like you you might feel like you're not going anywhere but you are <laughs> and right. whatever escalator you're on is taking you in a particular direction up or down and so what's at stake is our formation. It, the life we are living and the human we are becoming. That's what's at stake. And if we're not intentional, if we're not mindful, if we're not thoughtful, then not just digital technology, but all sorts of things uh, will form us. And so if the life of following Jesus is the life of discipleship, if it truly is being formed into the image of Christ, Then we have to understand that takes a lot of intentionality and a lot of effort and practice, and um, stepping off of the escalator that's leading us toward formation in a different direction and intentionally stepping, uh, in a different direction, you know, moving in the direction of Christ. And um, I just, you know, it's it's sad because I saw in my own life and I see in the lives of so many, uh, this this sort of belief in the lie that life is neutral and that I get to choose uh, whether or not I'm moving in a particular direction, but we don't, we don't get to choose. We are all moving in a particular direction. The only choice we have is which direction. And so I think that's what's at stake.
0: Yeah. So one of the things I think where we see that, and we can, without getting too political, you know, I, I know people and I have been one of those people that was more shaped by the political radio that I listen to, yeah. right than by my Bible or by my yeah my pastor or whatever, right yeah, because what you what we spend time with is what shapes us, yes, and so yeah, that absolutely, and I think that's that's what you're saying I think that you're speaking my language that's exactly what I think as well it's it it just matters that we be thoughtful about it, okay, yes. So describe you know the you call it analog Christian analog church. Describe what you mean by analog versus digital.
1: Yeah, yeah. By analog, I just mean uh, the most baseline usage of the word. You know, um, tactile, physical, embodied. The theological mm-hmm. term would be incarnational. You know, we think yeah. about that every December when we sing "O come, O come, Emmanuel." You know, which means God with us. This reality that Jesus. The son of God did not come as a song or a book or a set of words or doctrines. He came as a human human being, you know, a, a newborn child with flesh and blood and bones and, you know, born in this cave. And um, so that's what I mean by analog. Uh, and, and with analog Christian, what I mean is the sort of Christian who pursues a life that is most fully lived in the present, you know, in their own body, in their physicality, learning to detach from all that ails us in the digital age, you know, these little devices that fit in our back pockets, which hold such powerful sway over us to, again, untether ourselves, free ourselves, or better yet, ask God by his spirit to free us from that enslavement and to live in the most fully Present human tactile physical way possible, um, and to be formed into into Christ's likeness uh, as we do.
0: The subtitle is cultivating contentment, resilience, and wisdom. Why those three things, and how do you find that? And maybe that leads to the story of you end up in the the fruit of the Spirit in each one of those. But give me the story of how God kind of led you there. Sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, contentment, resilience, and wisdom came from the fact that I just recognized in my own life. How much discontentment, fragility, and foolishness uh, there was. <laughs> now, I, I right. want to be careful here to say that you know that that wasn't all completely a result of social media. You know, it's it's not like if we delete Instagram and Facebook immediately, you're just going to be an utterly content and resilient and wise person. You know, people were uh, discontent fragile and foolish long before the internet. So this isn't some sort of like, you know, magic potion pill, you read the book and you're like, oh my goodness, I'm just perfection personified, you know.
0: Uh but I I, I it's just it's Jay, it's just so much more on display now, right? Like That's true. That's yeah. Well, I will say the digital age
1: while it is not necessarily the first uh, you know, the the first source of 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 that which ails us. Um, it is. It has been uh, a unique accelerator. I think we have grown uniquely discontent and uniquely fragile and uniquely foolish in the digital age for sure. So that's really where it came from. I realized, recognized in my own life personally, how do I find true contentment how do I become a resilient follower of Jesus? And how do I live wisely? How can I really pursue wisdom? And um, there are entire books and libraries of books written about each of those and fantastic books, many of which I I cite in my book. Um, But really, I was trying to do sort of a big picture overview survey of how the digital age, again, has made us discontent and fragile and foolish, and then ask the question, well, how might we then develop um, contentment, resilience, and wisdom? And as I began asking that question years ago, uh, I, I happened upon Paul's profound words in Galatians 5, and this famous passage about the fruit of the Spirit, you know, that Um, The fruit, uh, the spirit of God, uh, if we would allow him and if we would partner with him, the spirit of God um, can cultivate, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and and self-control within us. And so in the book, I essentially sort of describe some of the expressions of discontentment, fragility, and foolishness. Things like self-centric despair, comparison, contempt, um, impatience, hostility, you know, outrage, on and on. And I juxtapose each of these beautiful characteristics of the spirit uh, with each of those expressions of our discontentment, fragility, and foolishness. And I, I just found that in my own life, as I tried every day to live a life of keeping in step with the Spirit, as Paul writes later in Galatians 5, I found that the Spirit of God slowly but surely began cultivating His fruit in me, and I found that the characteristics of that fruit were really the most effective antidotes to These expressions of discontentment, fragility, and foolishness. So that's essentially where the book came from, and how it sort of landed on Galatians five.
0: Yeah, I love that. It's a really interesting application of that passage, I think. And when when I saw it, um, that's when I went, "Yes, I I, we got to talk about this because," you know, speaking from a spiritual formation view, right? The fruit is what comes about as a result of. The practices as a result of yes. the intentionality, right? Yeah, which is really actually kind of interesting. I was just looking at Ephesians five, and right before the fruit of the spirit, Paul gives a whole different list about all the bad things, and you can't yes. just say any one of those about the internet. Yes, right? all the all the things are on there. That's right, as well. So it's it's, you know, it it that never ceases to be true. I love the way that you set it up as. Um, I love that you w- use the word juxtaposition. That's the word I was using, al- also. Um, of the the for the spirit versus what essentially um that maybe the default uh, becomes right. So it did not and it's not even like a um you don't talk about it as like a war. Like we were so uh, steeped in this culture war kind of. Oh, yeah. Language. Do you know what I mean? But you set them up as kind of these choices, right? It's almost like an invitation. Yeah. Like here's, so you get a piece or you could, you could have not, I forget what you got with the the other terms. Contempt. Peace or contempt, right? You choose which one and you're sort of laying that out. Like here's, here's how that, how that goes. Is that was, I assume that was intentional. You wrote it, but tell, (laughs) tell me about that.
1: Yeah. Again, we, again, borrowing Jamie Smith's words, we live leaning forward. And uh, yeah. but you you have a choice. You have a choice in which direction to lean. It's not easy, you know. There's no promise that living a life of uh, fruitfulness in God comes easy. In fact, Jesus is very clear. You know, following Him demands taking up a cross and following Him. You know, it demands dying to ourselves. Uh, none yeah. of that is easy. It's not comfortable. It's quite sacrificial, and. Painful, even sometimes. Um, but the reality is, I think all of us would admit that we are willing to endure pain uh, for the sake of the greater good if we have a real belief and trust in, in the greater good. You know, those of us who are parents uh, and those of us who are not parents, when we think about our loved ones, the people we care about most, maybe, maybe your parents or uh, a dear friend or whoever. Um, I think all of us would say, without hesitation, if it came to it, yeah, I would gladly sacrifice um, unthinkable amounts. I would sacrifice for those I love, you know, for for most parents, you know, I think they would say they would sacrifice their own life. They would lay down their own life for their children because there's just so much love, and they desire their good. So that ability is in us. Um, and I think. Uh, It comes down to, do you really believe that uh, a life characterized by the fruit of the spirit is possible? And if it is, what are you willing to do about it? Are you willing to do the hard work of, again, in Paul's words, keeping in step with the spirit, you know, dying to yourself, taking up your cross, of zigging when the world zags, you know, of going low when the world goes high, on and on. And that's not easy to do. Um, and willpower alone is not enough, which is why these characteristics are characteristics of the spirit's fruit in us, not something oh, wow. we produce in and of ourselves. Uh, but we partner with God in the cultivating of this of this fruit. You know, it takes effort. I love the Dallas Willard quote, you know, when Willard says, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, grace is opposed to earning. It is not opposed to effort. And I think in the modern Western church, in so many ways, we have gotten that utterly wrong, you know, that grace means we kick back and do nothing and we're good to go. And that's not at all what grace means. Uh, grace is a gift given. You know, there's Um, John Barclay has written significantly about this, that in uh, the first century Greco-Roman world, it was a culture of uh, reciprocity, which means that, um, you know, if a gift was given to you, the expectation was that that you would return the kindness in some way. It was just the natural sort of expectation. And the word for grace, you know, the word we translate into grace in the English is the Greek word charis, which means gift. That was the word used for gift. And again, in that gift-giving culture, a gift was always received with a knowing expectancy that you would return that kindness with some sort of effort, uh, some sort of participatory gratitude. And we've forgotten that, you know, in the modern West. We just think God's grace means I get to kick back, relax, do what I want, and then when I die, go to heaven. Um, And that's not, you know, it's not, it's not that it doesn't mean that in some ways, but, but at its core, it doesn't mean that you don't kick back, you know, you you return the kindness.
0: Well, I think it's either that or it's okay. I accept grace to get into heaven, but then I got to work and do the works in order to. That's true. There's the other side of
1: it. Yeah. That's where Willard is so helpful. You can't earn it. There's no, like you've already received it. You know, some of it is just. About the order of things, a lot of people who have sort of mm-hmm. like this purely works based sense of faith oh yeah it's it's this understanding that you don't really receive it until you put in your hours or something, and that's not right. true and, and yeah,
0: some of it is even so far as to go uh you know if you don't believe all the right things yes. right there's there's some you know there's there's some of that earning in that way as yeah, well that's which, right. um which is difficult cool. so I I recently interviewed James Bryan Smith oh, about yeah. his new book The Good and Beautiful You. Yeah um and he recounts in there about um Dallas Willard we talking to Dallas which which by the way his mentors just made me really jealous. I'll just admit <laughs> that right here. But yeah. I was like holy cow. Uh but he said he said that like the Part of the, um, you know, I, I, I think what Dallas said was that the what he was concerned about the spiritual formation movement was that it would de, this devolve into this kind of um, spiritual practice movement, if you if you will, yeah, right? mm-hmm. to this kind of thing where it's or it was just oh we're just going to add these practices instead of those practices, yeah. And that's a real danger, um, which was why. So that's again to go back to the fruit of the spirit what I love about them is they aren't, yes, we need to be intentional, but they aren't really the thing that we control. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We can do the things we can do the practices. We can show up and be intentional, but it's the Lord that creates them in us. As as you said earlier. Um, okay. Something I do want to talk about because it is a little bit of my hobby horse uh, is the idea of love, which obviously is, is the first, uh, you know, one, first chapter and first uh, of the fear of the spirit. But I think we get love wrong sometimes as as American evangelicals, don't we?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, I tell this story, uh, I tell this story in that chapter, I think, where, uh, This one summer day, my mom was over at our house and she's got a green thumb, and we don't. So she was helping us plant a small little garden in our backyard. So she had this planter box and she was putting the soil in and planting the seeds and doing whatever gardeners do. I don't know. And then right (laughs) in front, right beside her, were my two children, and I was blowing bubbles and they were, you know, running around chasing the bubbles before they popped. And I had this thought like, oh, these are, this is, these are the two ways in which, uh, you know, the, the this represents sort of the misunderstanding of love and then the biblical vision for love. You know, culture thinks of love as bubbles, you know, these fleeting little moments, you know, these wonderful, mesmerizing little things floating in the ether, and we have to chase it and grab it before it pops. But then once it pops, you just got to move on and find the next bubble. You know, like we we think right. of love that way often. Um, but love looks a lot more like gardening. <laughs> it looks a lot more like getting dirt beneath your fingernails, you know. Um, and it's it's an it's an ongoing, effortful participation in the work of receiving and giving, receiving and giving. You know, I, I think that love atrophies when it's not in motion. Love is intended to be in constant mm-hmm. motion. Uh, And because we have this gross misunderstanding of love in our culture today, this is why we have, we use language like, well, the spark is gone and then marriages end, marriages fade. And what people mean is, you know, I don't feel the same butterflies now when I see her, you know, I don't feel the same sort of exhilaration when I see him. So that must mean that there isn't love. Uh, But we all also probably know uh, one or two or maybe several couples who have been married for 50 years, and they still deeply love each other. And, you know, we've all seen sort of probably maybe at the park or something, that beautiful scene of uh, the the married couple in their 80s, walking down the park, holding hands. And you think to yourself, there is no way that when they see each other in the morning, there's butterflies in their stomach. (laughs) You know, there is absolutely no way. And yet they are more deeply in love than we can even possibly imagine. Because love, true love, deep love, is cultivated over long periods of time, like gardening. And it's cultivated through the, the practice of receiving that love and giving that love in return. And I think we we, you know, pull the ripcord far too early, often culturally, when it comes to love. You know, we bail on each other. And we never really actually get to that point where we experience the depth of love the way it was intended to be experienced. And so, especially in the digital age, when everything is so fast and our patience has waned so much, um, we're really in danger of, of living loveless lives. I just, I really believe that, you know, because we never stay long enough and invest long enough and commit long enough to experience love at its fullest. So, you know, you think about the love of God and how far he went, the extent he went to, to express that love to us, you know, uh, there's that beautiful passage, but you know, while we were still sinners, <laughs> God sent us. Right. Not after, okay, so that, you know, but right. while, yeah, it's beautiful.
0: Wow. Right. Which I think is, is, some of the most important uh conceptual ideas for us about love and it's one reason why um i no longer like can stand uh language that we use sometimes about deserving mm-hmm. you know like because we whether it's in worship songs or you know if a pastor starts talking about this in church i i just i may get up and walk out because it makes me crazy <laughs> because it it isn't like it's In fact, you can't even, it's not only that you can't earn or that you you can't deserve the love of God. It's that when you introduce the concept of deserve, you've already completely missed it. That's right. Right? You can't say that you can't earn it. You have to say, he loves you because you are right. That's how it is. Yeah. It's just a reality. It's not even a, and that's where I think is so, it gets so strained, um, you know, in, in our some of our presentations of the gospel and the ways that we were taught and some of that that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. Oh, you can respond to that if you Yeah, want.
1: I mean, you know, that phrase, the the biblical idea that God is love, we've heard it so we've heard it so often, it's just you know, semantic satiation has like taken hold. It just doesn't mean anything anymore. You might as well just say goobly mm-hmm. glop, you know, <laughs> like right, God is right, love, googly right. glop. It's just another thing, you know. You say, um, but what a profound thought. I mean, what a profound thought. If God is if God is love, what that means is everything about him, every decision, every choice, every expression. Finds its root cause in love. I mean, even his judgment, which is a very difficult thing to talk about, or his wrath, mm-hmm. you know, and people argue and debate like, Oh my gosh, how can you worship a god like that? Read the old testament, he's so barbaric. If you do the work, we don't have time to get into it here, but if you do the work, you realize like you can connect the dots and you realize this is all driven by an insane depth of love God has for people and all of his creation, love that compels him to right the wrongs and eradicate Mm -hmm. injustice and evil in the world, because he so desperately longs to live in a loving relationship with the whole of creation and his people, you know, for sure. So yeah, it's a profound thought for sure. And I, and I agree with you. I, I, I just, I think there's a lot of work to be done in terms of um, excavating the depths of, of what love truly means. But I think the work is so worth it because once we do, we begin to, you know, walk in that direction and fully experience it, maybe for the first
0: time for a lot of people. Right. And that has tremendous shaping and power, right? Yes. When we get that, when we, when we meditate on the idea of love, Mm -hmm. I think our you're right. Our culture has gives us kind of these hippy dippy ideas about what what love is, and so whenever I post online about love, there's always somebody who's going to say, "Okay, but love doesn't mean you know just whatever, right?" Yeah. And okay. I'm which I'm willing to grant, but uh, also shut up. Because <laughs> <laughs> think about it for a minute before you just completely dismiss what love is actually all about. Yeah. So um uh that's why it's as a as a Christian, I think I'm like so I I think the epitome of the Christian spiritual journey is love, mm. right? The end of the Christian spiritual journey is loving like Christ. Yeah. That's who we become. It's living a life of love. I'm sure you've read the critical journey maybe. Yep. Um that's what they talk about, right? So like that If that's true, which I think is true, I think we see somebody like John, you know, the disciple John, assuming he wrote, you know, those little epistles, the son of thunder, right? Who becomes the guy, the old man who says, little children love one another. Yeah, That's where we're going, right? That's where we're trying to go. Love matters deeply. And we have to take it beyond that whole being afraid of the hippy dippy stuff Yeah, (laughs) and going into what it really means. Right. That's good. All right. Well, I told you it was my hobby horse, Jay. This is something that I, <laughs> I, I care about a lot. I love because it. Because I think it has a formational value for us. Yes. So, yeah. Jay, what should we do now? Like if our listeners are are listening to this and they're going, uh, obviously they're, they're going to buy the book, but, if, uh, but what else can they do? Like what should, what's a practice or something you found helpful as you've, as you've navigated this?
1: Yeah, I mean, very practically. There's, there's several things. One, uh, you know, I first read about this in Andy Crouch's fantastic book, um, "The Techwise Family," and he's got a new book out uh, that's incredible. But um, you know, many of you already know this, but he he talks about practicing digital sabbaths, and it was just. It's something I, I've implemented into my life. And it's been so, I mean, truly, I, this is not hyperbolic. It's been so transformative. So the whole concept is, you know, a one hour a day digital Sabbath, uh, where you literally completely turn off, shut off your digital devices. You're completely disconnected from an online life. And you're just mm-hmm. present with God, with the people around you uh, in the you know physical location that you're in, uh, just being fully human, embodied. Um, and then, uh, one day a week, try to do that entire full day a week, uh, maybe with your family or your friends, go on a long hike, enjoy a good meal. Um, you know, a a long conversation over coffee, read a book, whatever it might be. Uh, and then really intense, but one week a year. And, uh, I had never done the one week a year until these last few weeks. Uh, we went on vacation, my family, just my wife and I and our two young kids, and for almost two weeks, I completely detached from digital. And, oh, man, I, I, I don't even have the words to describe how strange and jarring it was, but also how profoundly freeing it was. You know, in some ways, it felt like I was breathing different air or something. So mm. um, so that's one thing, you know, practice di- digital Sabbaths. Um, another really practical thing, you know, I, I would say it's so important to do an inventory of our smartphones in particular as consistently as possible and to delete, you know, to delete and unclutter our smartphones and ask the question, Mm. you know, what, what's this phone even for? Like, why do I have this? (laughs) You know. You've been
0: looking at my phone. Jay. <laughs> it's, it's collecting, it's collecting games. I don't know what that means. Yeah. yeah. So that's,
1: that's <laughs> another idea. You know, again, I did that on vacation. You know, I, obviously I still had my phone with me. I needed it for directions and such. Uh, but yeah, I deleted right. all social media, deleted my email from my phone. And yeah, it's just really helpful. Started deleting just random stuff like a sports app that I would use because I, I found myself in any moment of boredom, I had this thing in my mind is like, you know, I wrote the analog books. I can't like just constantly go on social media, but then I would just fill that time by going on this sports app (laughs) and reading sports articles and (laughs) looking at scores. Like, what is the difference? I mean, it is a little different, but still, I was like, no, like I'm still not present in this moment, you know, in my body. So, yeah. uh, So anyways, yeah. Delete things from your phone. Um, So those are a couple, there's several more, but those are a couple that come to mind.
0: Yeah. Those are great. I love all those. Um, yeah. And you know, what strikes me that really interesting thing is the tools for shaping your soul never really change. Mm. Right. Yeah. They're always kind of the same Sabbath is one of them. Yes. Taking a digital sabbath That's just one of the tools. Israel used it. And you know, the ways that God prescribed, we should be practicing it as well and we can do beyond just a day. Right. There's other things like you were saying an hour a day. Fascinating. Those tools are always the same if we just use use them in the right, you know, or in a new way. Sometimes we have to be creative about how we do that. But yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. All right, Jay, thanks for being here. I really do appreciate you having this discussion. Uh, It's definitely something I think we all can uh, think about a little bit and just try to be a little bit more intentional about. Um, Yeah, is there anything you want to leave us with?
1: No, I just, uh, yeah, my hope and prayer is that this book and, you know, anything I, I, I work on and, and share with the world is helpful for you. Um, and really, it's, a, it's just a prayerful offering. So um, I pray that the Spirit of God, whoever you are, wherever you are, uh, I pray that the Spirit of God would cultivate the life in you that uh, I think, whether you know it or not, you most long for.
0: I love that. Friends, once again, the book is called Analog Christian. You can get it wherever you get your books. As always, I have links at HalfwayTherePodcast.com. And Jay's website is JKIMThinks.com. That's super clever. I like that, Jay. (laughs) Thanks for being here, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much, Aaron.